Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 5, verse 16 to 24. So because Jesus was doing things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as a father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whosoever does not honor the son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verily, truly, I tell you, whosoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, as we hear your word proclaimed, your gospel read, may our ears receive what you have for us, our hearts understand them, and our minds comprehend the depth and the grace of your love for us. I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. So, we just heard uh, from, from John's Gospel, chapter 5, and, and I'm going to back up a little bit to give a context of what's going on. So what had happened is Jesus had entered into Jerusalem. It was the Sabbath day, and Jesus came across a man who was sitting near one of the pools, and he was trying to get into the pool to get healed because they thought that if you got into this pool and the, and the waters were stirred up that you could be healed of whatever was ailing you, but the man could never get in there. And Jesus had a short chat with the man and, and asked him, you know, what, why, don't, why are you here? And, he's, and the man says, well, I want to be healed. He had been uh, crippled for 38 years. And Jesus says, well, do you want to be healed? And he said, yeah, but I have no way of getting in there. And so Jesus said to him, well, just take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. So Jesus had done this great thing. He had taken a lame man and allowed him to walk. He had healed him after 38 years of not being able to walk. 
And yet we're told that the Jewish leaders were none too impressed with this. It says in verse 16, this is why the Jewish leaders were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was doing them on a day that you weren't supposed to do any work. He was doing these things on a day that was supposed to be set aside only for the glory of God, only to worship God. That was the only work you ought to do. Nothing else was to be done. And so they approached Jesus, and they tried to talk to him. They wanted to correct him, to tell him that what he was doing was was not appropriate, to tell him he was breaking the Sabbath law. Surely this man would be reasonable and listen to them if if they only came to him and, and spoke to him. Now, you know those moments in your life where a conflict is about to start and you have a decision to make. As soon as you know a conflict is about to start between you and someone else, you have a decision to make, don't you? That conflict can go in in one of two directions. You can choose a course of action which will calm things down. You can choose a course of action which will ease the situation, relax it, let everyone walk away happy. Or, option two, you can add fuel to the fire. You can make something, uh, some, something worse by what you say. Which one do you usually choose? If I asked the person sitting beside you, which one would they say you usually choose? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this about Jesus But he's more of a type 2 sort of guy. It's almost like he enjoys disturbing the status quo. He he likes getting people worked up. He likes adding fuel to the fire, it seems. And so that's exactly what he does. Jesus says in verse 17, he answers them, Well, my father is working till now, and I am working. Now, part of that statement is fine. The idea that God is working even until now. It's not like the Sabbath day comes and God simply sits back, relaxing on a cloud with his feet up, waiting to be praised for 24 hours. It's not like the universe just, he just, God sort of lets the universe go and say, okay, you run yourself for the day. That's not the way it works. Of course God is still working, even though it is the day of rest. And had Jesus just said that, he might have gotten away with it. But Jesus calls God my Father. And he says, like my Father, like Yahweh, like the great Almighty, the Lord of hosts, like Him, I am working too. Jesus says He is not confined to the Sabbath law which applies to man and not to God because He is the Son of God. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Could you not just have held your tongue just for a moment? There's so much here that's going to upset these Jewish leaders. And and you you just couldn't have let it go, could you? You had to step into it. Now, often we don't paint a very pleasant picture of the Jewish leaders, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests. And part of that is probably justified. But for the most part, these were good men. They were faithful men. They loved God. They strived to be obedient to the law and to instruct others to do the same. They took worship seriously. 
And they wanted to protect Israel. They loved Israel with all their being. And they wanted to protect Israel from outside cultural influences, to protect her from political and military powers that surrounded them. And Israel, if we're honest, does not have a great track record of being obedient to the God who delivered them from Egypt, keeping the law and proper worship. And she was constantly under attack from foreign cultures, foreign gods, foreign ideas, and foreign philosophies. Consider just one thing. For example, the Passover. The Passover feast was, was as you know, it's a feast that they, they were to have right before God set them free from slavery in Egypt. And God told them, you should keep this feast every year. And yet when we read Scripture, we learn that from the time of the Exodus until sometime in the intertestamental period, that's that period around the, the second century or so when, when we don't have a lot of Scripture, sort of Scripture has ended and it's before the time of Jesus. So roughly a period of about 1,200 years. Do you know how many times Scripture says that the Jews celebrated the Passover? Any guesses? 1,200 years. You're supposed to do it every year. Any guesses how often they did it? Less than half a dozen. Wow, they were obedient. And then somehow, at the point between the Babylonians taking them over and them going into exile and returning, and Roman rule, sometime in that period, they began to learn to keep the feast every year. It was also during this time that they finally became a monotheistic people, worshipping one God. It may have taken God one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 1,200 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Remember the reason God let Israel and Judah fall into foreign hands? It's because they failed to do justice, they failed to, to keep the law and to love mercy and act in grace, and because they were idolaters. They were adulterous with other gods. And now here they are again, surrounded and governed by a foreign nation who had multiple gods, who worshipped their own leaders. No real belief or respect for the Jewish faith or the Jewish law. Greco-Roman morality and worldview was completely different from Israel. And the threat of syncretism, of the blending of these cultures, was constant. Does this sound familiar It had taken 1,200 years before the people of Israel became anywhere close to the type of people God had called them to be. So is it any wonder the Jewish leaders were staunch defenders of the law? Is it any wonder that they seemed legalistic and maybe even a little oppressive? Is it any wonder that any threat from outside or especially from within had to be dealt with quickly and surely? They were not bad people. They were in their hearts looking out for the good of Israel. Ardent defenders of the true faith once delivered to them by the prophets and the saints. That's what they were doing. Jesus was a clear and present danger in his actions and his teaching. He was upsetting everything they knew about God about how to know God, about how to understand God, about how to worship God and to be obedient to God. This was bad 
For the people will suffer if this is allowed to continue. This is exactly why the high priest Caiaphas will, in a few chapters from now, prophesy that it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. That must stop. And any talk of him being equal with God must be ended. It's blasphemy. There is only one God. And if anyone is the son of God, it's Israel, not this carpenter rabbi from Nazareth. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus tries to explain himself. And he says, I tell you the truth, the son can't independently do anything. I can't do anything on my own accord. I only do what I see the Father doing. I do nothing on my own. What the Father does, the Son does. The Father loves the Son and includes Him on everything He has going on. So Jesus is saying, I see the Father working on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. I see the Father's desire to show mercy, and so I show mercy, and I heal. And what is unveiled in Jesus' answer here as Jesus speaks is this incredible love and this deep intimacy between the Father and the Son. They are one, which is a theme that John will unpack as the gospel unfolds. Jesus has no identity separate from the Father, writes Jean Vanier. He says his very existence is communion with the Father. He cannot be separate from the Father, for he is one with the Father. The Father and the Son are in in unity of love and light. In this unity are are the source of all life and all creation. Which is precisely what John says at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The Father, the Son, and we will learn soon enough, the Holy Spirit, are the relationship of unified love out of which the universe is made. They know everything of each other. They are fully dependent on each other, and yet they never lose who they are in each other. We learn from Jesus here, too, that there's a problem if we begin to change the names of the Trinity, as some are wont to do. The Trinity historically has been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the modern years we've we've changed it to Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. The problem with that is we end up reducing the Trinity to an identity based on role rather than based on their relationship. The Father is the Father because Jesus is the Son. He is not the Mother. Jesus, by His human nature, has a Mother. Her name is Mary. Jesus is divine by His very nature, And by that nature has a father. And he is the son. It is relational, it is mutual, and it is rooted in unceasing love. And it is into this relationship that Jesus is wanting to invite the Jewish leaders who are presently accusing him and the love into which he is inviting us. Jesus says it's urgent that you listen carefully to this. Anyone here who believes what I am saying right now aligns himself with the Father and with me. 
who has in fact put me in charge, has at this very moment the real lasting life and is no longer condemned to be an outsider, this person has taken a giant step from the world of the dead to the world of the living. Jesus is saying, I am offering you to come and sit with the Father and with me, to live with us and and to have us live in you. The language he will use a little later on is abide in me, that I may abide in you. To live a life which is truly life in the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees, you see, are spiritually paralyzed. They're spiritually paralyzed by their faith of fear. Just as the man at the pool was physically paralyzed. See what John does here with the symbolism? Isn't it beautiful? John's such a marvelous writer. They were spiritually paralyzed. Jesus knows what their next question is going to be. He knows what their objection is. Their question is, well, why should we believe you? What evidence do you have? We've seen so many so-called messiahs come and go, and they start off in a fiery blaze of glory, and then when they die, as they all do, nothing is left, and oftentimes destruction comes upon us. So why should we believe you? Now, if someone today were to walk into this church and begin to say that they were God or the Son of God, what would we do? What would we think of them? What would we say to them? Let me tell you about a place called the Hope Center. We'd lock them up. We'd think they were crazy. Or we'd think they were liars. Deceived. So Jesus says again, Look, I've told you, I can't do anything on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But he says, you're right. You can't take my word for it. You're right. I'll give you that. I do say that I am the Son of God and do my Father's will, but I get it. Testimony testimony about me cannot come from me. If I alone bear witness about myself, says Jesus, my testimony isn't true. But, let me tell you, there are other witnesses. He says, well, look, look, look to John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, the one who comes after me is greater than me because he was before me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his laces. And then he looked to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus says, you were all over John. You were all attracted to the light and the truth that he was bringing. That is, until the light got a little too bright for you. Too close, and you began to be exposed, and then you turned away from him. But he's still a witness to who I am. But what about another witness that confirms me as greater than John? Just look at the signs, the works my Father has given me to accomplish. The works are a sign bearing witness to who I am, turning water into wine, casting out demons, healing the lame and the deaf and the blind. These are all signs pointing to God's kingdom, signs showing what life in the kingdom is really going to be like. The signs themselves testify to who I am. Or consider Nicodemus. Nicodemus has already testified that Jesus could only do the things that he's doing if God were with him. And in the signs is my Father's own testimony about me, says Jesus. Verse 36 and 37, he says, The very works that I am doing 
bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. But here's the problem. You don't believe God's testimony. You don't believe His voice. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. So you don't believe me, you don't believe John, you don't believe the signs, you don't believe Nicodemus, you don't even believe God himself. Instead, you search the scriptures, you go through them backwards and forwards, and you look for evidence against me. And do you want to know the irony in that? Jesus says, even even the very scriptures that you search bear witness about me. But you are just so blind in your precious faith. You are so stuck in your prejudices. You are so certain that you know God and His Word, and yet you know nothing. He says, I I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He He quotes Jesus saying, You have your heads in the Bible constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am, standing right in front of you, and yet you are not willing to receive from me the life that you say you want. I somehow don't match up with your idea of a horse-riding, sword-wielding, glory-seeking Messiah, so you think you'll find in scripture that you think you find in scripture and so you want to kill me. But Jesus says, I don't seek the glory of man. Jesus says, I only seek to glorify the Father. He says, I'm not interested in crowd approval. And do you know why? Because I know you in the crowds. I know that you, that I know that love, especially God's love, is not on your working agenda. I came with the authority of my Father, and you either dismiss me or avoid me. If another came acting self-important, you would gladly welcome him with open arms. How do you expect to get anywhere with God when you spend all your time jockeying for position with each other and ranking your rivals and ignoring God? Here, John Vanier says, Jesus touches on our fundamental sin. We are continually seeking human glory and admiration from one another. We refuse to see and accept the signs of God's presence in the reality of our world, in what we see and hear. We remain closed up in our own religious straitjackets or homogeneous groups, seeking our own glory, sure of our own certitudes, and frightened of being open to the new, to the moving of the Spirit. But Jesus says... Do not think that I will accuse you to my father. I'm not going to bring up charges against you to my father. There's one who already accuses you. Moses. That must have stung. Moses accuses you. The one who wrote the law accuses you already. Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. He bore witness about me too. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus knows that they're so stuck in their ways, they're so paralyzed with 
fear, they will not hear him or see him for who God has revealed him to be. Is it any wonder that the signs Jesus does are things like giving life to the dying, allowing the paralyzed to walk, allowing the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the dead to rise? They're all signs. But I wonder, would it be any different today? If Christ were to return, just show up again in Vancouver or Rome or Canterbury or New York or wherever, would it be any different? Would church leaders, elders, priests, theologians, bishops fare any better than the Jewish leaders did? If he, upset, if he upsets things again, our religion, our worship, our traditions, our liturgy, our polity, our moralism and our legalism, our priorities of church life, our desires to continually seek human glory and admiration from one another, our quest for power, for the church to be thought of as important and relevant. If he upset those things again, would it be any different? See, Jesus doesn't upset our faith and practices just because it's a fun thing to do. It's because the faith and practices of Israel and the church today are still so far from the kingdom. Would we not be just as blind and deaf, just as paralyzed in our ways and our fears? As we approach Easter, as we enter Lent, as we consider on Wednesday our own death, our own mortality, remember that thou art dust, and to dust you shall return. Would we not kill him again? Oh Jesus, let us pray. Oh Jesus, it's so easy to look at the stories of Scripture and and point our fingers and say, oh, those foolish Jewish leaders. How could they not see? And yet, how blind are we? How could they be so paralyzed in their faith, and yet, how paralyzed are we? How much fear is rooted in our faith, rather than hope? Jesus, as we enter into this Lenten season, as we take this journey towards the cross, let it be for us a seeking of your kingdom, of a greater understanding of who you are and your glory. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has gathered together to celebrate around the table, to celebrate the communion, the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, to remember these words that Jesus spoke in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, 
Whosoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is not the bread that came down. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so we gather at the table. We gather for the Eucharist. An act of memorial, but an act of reality. Jesus says, take my body. Take my flesh and eat it. Take my blood and drink it. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, saying, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 